<coughs> Hello, once again, this is the Bookish Podcast. This is episode two, and once again, I'm your host, your Grand Inquisitor, Viv, or Viv Mondo, or Richard Hurst, uh, to give you my real name, my nom d'actuel. I hope you're all feeling suitably tired. I hope your judgment is suitably impaired by abject exhaustion. I hope your concentration has been made poor enough through lack of sleep to shoulder the blame for some of the sloppy editing and unrigorous questioning you're about to hear. Uh, Chances are you found me via the internet. Almost certainly, I'd say you've downloaded this podcast. I'd probably place a bet on it if I didn't expect the odds to be so bad. But maybe not, maybe I'm wrong. Uh, Maybe someone else downloaded it for you and burned it onto a CD. Or maybe they recorded it onto a tape or had it pressed onto vinyl for you. If you have had this uh, recording pressed onto vinyl, please drop me a line, let me know. I'd love to hear from you. I know in my heart of hearts that's not actually going to happen, but at least let me dream. Uh, The rest of you, though, the majority, I suspect, who have merely downloaded this and own it in only the most perfunctory sense possible, that is, as an electronic data file on some kind of device, uh, know that I don't hold it against you. Convenience, I understand, is important. And thus, I am reduced, as ever, to an ephemeral sound wave or some barely functioning html which is all i deserve i suppose the internet ladies and gentlemen is our fate our inescapable future if someone today were to tell you they didn't use the internet you perhaps accuse them of waywardness of trying to cultivate an image of being different or of being old or a baby if they said they'd never heard of it you'd be forgiven for suspecting dementia what's the internet they'd say You're losing your mind, you'd cry back. (laughs) I just don't know what it is, they'd tell you. Your feeble grip on reality is destroying this family, you'd scream. I'm afraid in this this little hypothetical exchange I'm creating, you come across very callous. Anyway, the reason I have to tell you all this, apparently, is uh, because I recently went to Finsbury Park in London to meet Greg Stakelman. And Greg is known not so much as a writer as a an internet presence, but a writer he is. If you know of him, it's possibly from his books or perhaps from his website, themanwhofellasleep.com, potentially from his Facebook page where he posts regular short stories, uh, but it's probably from his at the man who fell guys on Twitter where he's a prolific tweeter. I'm aware that for the non-Twitter listenership, being summed up by the phrase a prolific tweeter effectively means someone who posts lots of Facebook statuses uh, and is therefore a horribly insulting slur. Uh, the difference, of course, is that Twitter is there for anybody to read. Any Johnny Q public can read your tweets, as they're sadly known. And it seems that everybody reads Greg's tweets. Uh, deservedly so. He's a funny guy. He's an interesting guy and he writes very well. Uh, but I think the secret of his success is the persona he's created on Twitter of a world-weary, uh, perennially alienated urban flaneur for want of a less massively horrific phrase but when i met him uh, there was none of this dark morose sarcastic twitter persona instead greg disarmed me by being lovely and thoughtful and concerned about writing which is something i think does come across in uh, the interview you're gonna hear i even left the gift i was given a copy of island of the lizard king an ian livingston choose your own adventure classic which he clearly spied me glancing at covetously throughout the recording. Aside from being on the internet, Greg has written two books, A Year in the Life of the Man Who Fell Asleep, which is a lot of his website collected with new material into a diary form, and Tube Tales, a sort of fragmented graphic novel, which is published privately. You have to ask him if you want a copy, which I think is nice. And I think it's interesting that although these books don't sell in huge numbers, he's, in a sense, better known than the average writer. His work, which is what it is, is known to literally tens of thousands of people. Every day, they read the things he writes, they take them in, they use them to formulate their senses of how they see the world. Now, as you'll hear, he's not famous, but lots of people do know who he is. In terms of what gets called the national debate, I'd imagine he's probably as influential as John Nettles, Kevin Kennedy, Terence Trent Darby, Paul Carrick, Mayim Bialik, Leo Sayer, Barbara Windsor, Rick Stein, Lee Hurst. Just a 
no, I think, I think it'll be hard. How long are you down here for then? Uh, I'm going back tomorrow. Okay. Uh, I came down on Saturday. Uh, has, yeah. it, has it been productive? It has, yeah. It's, I'm completely knackered. Yeah. So, whenever uh, you're ready to. Well, yeah. Um, I guess my first actual proper question is to ask you how famous you are. I'm not. I don't consider myself famous in any way at all. I'm famous on Twitter, mm. which uh, it's it's you know in the, if there's a kind of pecking order of fame, I think is the most insignificant form of fame I've never been on TV I've never been on radio I don't think I've been on radio I've been on radio uh, being interviewed with James Ward about uh, in which he, he, he told her about how he was beaten up for his phone and I was there as a kind of comedy sidekick um, I think that um, I don't think I think very few writers are famous I mean I think it's interesting because when I first when I published my first book in 2006 I kind of I was freelancing at the time and when it was published I kind of did that thing of like saying, oh, I'm going to take loads of time off work so I can promote it. And, like, after about three months of kind of going, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure radio sessions are going to be calling me and I'm sure that the Observer will want to do interviews and stuff. I kind of thought, you, you just have to go, oh, I'm not actually, you know, this hasn't changed my life in any material way at all. Mm. I have to just go back to um, my day job, you know, and kind of accept that it's a nice, fun thing to do, but it doesn't really... Um, affect you in any way it doesn't so no I wouldn't say um, but it's weird like famous. for Twitter it's like in it's I, don't, I never can never really tell if it's like a bubble that's sort of separate from the real world where people kind of can get a lot mm. of recognition and you know if you write something lots of people will read it which is in a sense is you know right yeah um, I, I think that I treat it like a bubble and then I remember it isn't and I'll put stuff on there that I would not put, if I was consciously thinking of how many people are following me, how many people are reading it, the fact that they've got positions of power, the fact that they know my family, or the fact that they're actually real people. I, you know, I think of it as a number. And, you know, I went for a meeting today about work stuff, and uh, the woman in the meeting said, said she followed me on Twitter and, and mentioned something about, I'd done a tweet about sad bukkake, which involved, you know, 10 men gathering around a woman and crying on her you know and that's fine but when I tweeted that I didn't think that it was actually going to be somebody real who would then be meeting me about work would be referencing it um so I do I do treat it as a bubble and that's probably a bit naive but I think that if you are consciously aware at any point of how many people you're following you in particular then you wouldn't read you wouldn't Anything. Is that is that just true of Twitter, or when you're writing anything, do you think of who's going to read it? Or um, I, I read your mind or anything. I, no, I don't have any. I try to. It's a cliche, but I kind of try to impress myself or please myself, and then I occasionally think about close friends or family and what they think of it. Um, but beyond that, not really. Um, I'm always astonished when you know when Twitter is my largest audience in the sense it's either well you could either say it's my largest audience or it's certainly my most instant audience you know in the sense if you write something and you know five minutes later you're getting feedback from it you know mm. and you're and, and I'll, I'll do I've been writing kind of slightly longer pieces on Facebook and I, I link to them on Twitter and suddenly you've got you know and it's 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 very addictive that sense of instant feedback um, and I, I sometimes find myself writing with those people in mind and then realising, no, that's not a good idea mm. um, and stopping myself. But, um, no, I try not to write with anybody in mind because I think you start, um, instead of writing something that's actually really good, you know, that's true to itself, you start tailoring it and t tweaking it for what you think people will like and I don't like doing that. So Is it frustrating, though, to find that um, you can come up with, like, a conceit or... Uh, like a, some tweets that will turn into like you know a sort of a germ of a story, mm. but that's as far as it goes. It's always very sort of transient, and it's sort of you've written it, and it can go out there, and lots of people read it. But then after a couple of days, it's that's you know it's, it's finished. Yeah, I mean, I think you know until I can form a way of archiving every single one of my tweets and then charging mm. people to read them. Um, that yeah, it is. I mean, I I think that um, I think that. Twitter and Facebook are amazing things. I think they're incredible, but I think that a lot of ideas that 20 years ago or 30 years ago, somebody would have an idea and the idea itself wouldn't be enough. And then they'd turn it into a short story and they'd say, maybe that will work better as a novel. They'd write a novel, they'd get it published and it's there as a novel. Whereas actually nowadays you can have two or three ideas, turn them into a tweet, 
put them out there, get 50 retweets, very nice, and you move on. And you think, well, that's fine, but you lose sight of the long game. You lose sight of the fact that this was a really nice idea that could have been crafted and could have been um, turned into something, turned into art. And instead, it's just like, it, it's just, you know, a bit yeah. of stuff on the internet. And I, I, I'm, I'm curious what other writers would say, but I find that Twitter and Facebook and the like, first of all, they motivate me to write because you have a built-in audience. You know, you have somebody, it's, it's very depressing, the, the prospect of writing, sitting down, writing something, knowing somebody's going to see it for months and when they do, it'll be, you know, kind of the bottom of a pile of some agents, you mm. know, manuscripts. And, and so it's fantastic you've got the audience, but the, the problem with that is you throw away so much stuff for free or you throw away stuff really developing it because you kind of go, you have a, a brilliant line in your head and rather than building a story around it, you just use it as a tweet mm. and it's gone. And of course you can go back and, mm. and, but a lot of the stuff is just kind of think about the fact that how, you know, I'm on about 75,000 tweets mm. and think that's a couple of novels. Yeah. Know? I worked out when I got to about, I think I got to 30,000 and worked out if I had like an average of a hundred characters. Yeah. Then collectively, that's like about half of um, War and Peace. As I say, I feel quite ambivalent about it because I think it's a brilliant motivation and the mm. fact that you've got an instant audience is, is, is fantastic. But at the same time, um, you know, it, it makes you... You have a short game and a long game and the short game is like, you know, they, they had this experiment where they kind of... Um, they put a chip in a mouse and uh, it meant that if it pressed a certain button um, in its cage... It would stimulate this chip and it would make it very happy. And it learned after a while that, you know, how to press this button and it was constantly pressing the button and eventually it wasn't eating or sleeping. It was just pressing this button and it died because it wasn't eating or drinking. And I thought that's a great metaphor for Twitter because it's that kind of thing of like you go, oh, I could go off. I could disconnect for like a week and write, you know, a lovely short story or a lovely chapter of a novel. But instead you just go tweet, tweet 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 because you're constantly getting feedback you're constantly getting approval you're constantly getting some kind of interaction and it's incredibly addictive and it is you do i do have that kind of oh look i'm a tiny mouse <laughs> kind of feeling do you think it's uh, good for actual writing for like do you think it helps for um, structure or i don't know like mm, sentence by sentence or is it bad for it i suspect it's bad for it i think it's good in the sense that it turns everybody into a sub-editor and that everybody goes mm. i've got to get something down to 140 characters and so the number of times you find yourself with a seemingly perfect tweet that's 160 characters long and you're trying to work out which word to lose and how to rewrite it to get it into 140 characters. Mm. That's a really good skill. But at the same time, I think that, you know, often um, ideas um, can be expressed better than, you know, there are a lot of ideas that are complex and ambiv ambiguous and all the other things and, and trying to, I think people nowadays try to fit everything into a, a bite-sized kind of thing and mm. uh, probably isn't very good, I don't know. That was a good example of how inarticulate I've become, <laughs> uh, kind of because I haven't got Twitter in front of me, and I've got unlimited characters with which to speak. So my rambling, slightly vague answer is a, is, a, is actually a perfect answer. I guess yeah. with like with if Twitter, if you if you if you're using it to have a large amount of different ideas, but condensing them lots, mm. do you ever find yourself, even if you think you could go, could go back and use them for something different, do you sort of feel you don't really want to because they're out? Like, if you've used yeah. an idea, it feels like it could be stale to go back to it. Yeah, I, I, I do think that. I mean, I think a lot of a lot of the ideas only work in the context of the timeline in which they're, you know, so they're a reaction to something that's happened on the news or they're, mm. they're something topical or they're something, you know, they're... And, and the, you know, when I do stuff like MasterChef, you know, mm. when I live-tweet MasterChef, it's very funny, but then I read it back afterwards and it doesn't really work because mm. it's brilliant in the context of seeing something live and your reaction to it, but I don't really enjoy reading it afterwards. No, I've heard um, that if you look back at a tweet, anything that's kind of vaguely uh, to do with topical mm. things, if you look back at them, they, they, it might even make sense because you've forgotten mm. like all the details. You think, why, why was this so funny? And also, it's, if you see... I always hate it when they, they do, like, top tweets in papers and things. Because mm. outside Twitter, it looks really weird and sort of... It's yeah, like, it's like yeah, I, I, I kind of burnt my bridges with that. I, somebody, I, I was featuring quite regularly in, in one of those best-of things on, mm. on... And I kind of... Not complained about it, but I kind of... Somebody said, oh, you must be thrilled about that your tweets are in the newspaper. And I was a bit like, well, I'm bittersweet. It's nice that they're in there. But at the same time, it's like the paper is getting a page of free material mm. at once a week or whatever. Yeah by kind of reprinting the stuff and okay it's crediting us it's got our names by it but you know they're a page of newspaper that would cost you know 1500 quid to produce they're getting free by taking our stuff mm. and it's 
it's it would be nice if we weren't treated as just a kind of free resource for you know, mm. newspapers or whatever. But yeah, it does look weird out of context. That yeah. make yeah, that makes me sound really ungrateful. I don't know if you sort of do you ever now still write stories that don't end up on the internet or um, very little. Uh, my first book was published in 2006 and it was kind of a collection of stuff that had already been on my website mm. and then my second book was last year and again some of that had already appeared on the internet as well so uh, I don't think I, I, I kind of consider myself a post-internet writer if that doesn't sound too wanky it does sound too wanky <laughs> but that's okay in the sense that I've never written an old-fashioned novel with a beginning a middle and an end it's all mm. very fractured kind of bite-sized stuff because it all started up on on you know websites and I really admire people who can write a proper novel with a beginning a middle and an end and subtle characters and motivations and plots whereas mine are just a series of ideas loosely glued together by pictures or <laughs> jokes and um, I think that works well and it's fine but if everybody wrote like me it would be a, it would be a disaster and do you think happy. you ever would write a sort of tradition not, maybe not traditional as in you know yeah more conventional uh, yeah. yeah I'd love to the books I read and the books I enjoy reading are tend to be, you know, relatively old fashioned and have plot and mm. character and I love all that stuff. I really like kind of escapist fiction that that presses all the right buttons and is you know, has a beginning, a middle and an end and has interesting protagonists and has a dragon in it maybe or something <laughs> like that. But I don't find myself when I try to write that kind of stuff it doesn't feel credible to me. You know, it mm. doesn't it feels like uh, I, it just runs out of steam. You know, when you're writing as a kid, when you're like four or five, and you, you know you're, you're nursery or school, and they're like, you know, write something, and you write about a page, and then you say, and then he woke up and it was a dream. That's essentially <laughs> how, how I feel. I kind of get to about twelve pages of writing something with a plot, and then I just know this is boring, and <laughs> they all died, and it was a dream. Uh, so it ends up like that. Yeah. Um, I would love to write that kind of stuff. Do you think that's more because of like writing for the internet, the demands of it of being very brief? Yeah, very... I think partly that, and I think partly because it's just a, never a discipline I, I learn. And I think that when I was in my mid-twenties, when I was first writing stuff for the internet, if at that point somebody had said, right, we'd like you to write a, a proper novel, I'd have had to have gone away and learnt and, and kind of developed the self-discipline to do that. But I've never had to do that because my success mm. has been founded on doing exactly the opposite which is kind of writing odd fractured stuff um without a plot and without a narrative and and without any character other than these kind of narcissistic reflections of myself so i've never had to kind of go hey let's have a, a kind of protagonist who is a 45 year old woman with two kids and uh, she thinks her husband's having an affair because it's like no it's just it's just another bit <laughs> of me but i would love to be able to do that but i just don't think i'd be very good at it at the moment so what um, so other than the sort of four year old waking mm. up and everything's <laughs> dream stories where would you sort of say you began to write is it, uh, is it, I, I wrote throughout my teenage years I wrote a lot of poetry as teenagers uh, uh, t- tend to do some of it was quite good I've always been somebody who enjoyed writing quite concisely I've never been somebody who I remember writing essays at university and, and some people would be you know they'd say oh you know it's got to be 5,000 words, but I'm only halfway through and I've already written 7,000 words. And I think, you idiot. Because <laughs> I feel like you write 500 words and you make your point, and then after that, everything's repetition. Mm. And, and I never got into the habit of kind of writing lengthy things. I really like writing poetry and, and little bits of short stories, which I was doing in, you know, throughout my 20s. And then the internet came along, and I started my website in year 2000, so I'd have been about 24. And that was probably the end of my career as a serious writer because you know you could put a paragraph up with a silly picture and people would like it and you didn't have to go through the rigmarole of writing thousands of words you know in a dusty room on an old typewriter with nobody seeing it with no feedback knowing that it would be probably ignored by an agent or a publisher for months on end and I think as I said earlier I think that the internet has been really positive but you know it also ruined me as a mm. as a writer and as a man <laughs> it's, it's kind of weird though when you think about when you think about that i always think if you look back at the 19th century there was lots of great novels written but mm. not that many like if you see what i mean mm. it's like there's loads but there's not as many as there there might have been and it's strange to think that pre the internet there's so many people who could have been writing similar things or could have produced mm. things that would have been perfect for some kind of form that was a bit like the internet 
but they never had the chance. Now, yeah, I mean, I, I really, I'm really curious to see how like books and the written word will evolve because, in a sense, like novels, I kind of feel like novels came around because the printing press, you know, meant that you could, you wouldn't, you know, you you wouldn't want to have a printing press of one page of short stories or two, you know, it had to be something substantial enough and big enough to warrant doing a print run. Whereas now, it doesn't matter whether, you know, it's a paragraph or a page or a line, you know, it doesn't, it, in terms of the internet, it doesn't matter. So, <clears throat> will people bother writing novels anymore? I mean, you know, are people going to just write <laughs> tweets and Facebook status updates and cobble them together and turn them into something is do people really have the patience or the discipline to read or write novels i don't know i mean it's it's, it's strange though if like is it seems like the novel or a book Mm. still seems like the end product to work towards for writing Mm. which i I assume is like a good thing but it doesn't always work that way it's strange that people even with the internet and twitter and Mm. different forms of writing it's always seen as being a sort of uh, hurdle you sort of go over mm. to get towards writing a novel. No, absolutely, and there's a there's a certain hierarchy where you'd say, well, you know, I've written something on Twitter, and then you'd say, well, yeah, but it's maybe a, high, a level above that would be writing an article for a newspaper online, and then a, a, a level above that would be having that same article published in a news, an actual physical newspaper, and then above that would be a short story published in an anthology, and above that would be a novel of your own. But actually more people read my tweets than would read my novels. So maybe the hierarchy's wrong. But there is that kind of thing of... I think I think I still think we use being published as a barometer that we're a good writer in the sense of anybody can have a Twitter account, anybody can have a blog, but only a certain proportion of the public of the, of the population are actually going to get published and have an editor and have people behind them who think that their work is good enough. And so we kind of go, hey, look at me, I'm not just a... A hack. I'm a published author, mm. but then you look at the way ebooks are going and things like that, and the fact that there are so many kind of ways to self-publish now. And I think the the kind of the sense of oh look, I'm a writer. Well, yeah, you know, I was just reading something on you know about some woman who's making millions of pounds on Amazon with a self-published book. Mm. And will that exist anymore? That set that hierarchy of look, I'm a published author. I don't I don't know that it will. I hope so because. It's all I've got to cling to. But, <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to kind of measure. It's hard to measure kind of artistic success if you've got no kind of actual criteria that can sort of. Mm. If, you, if, if at the moment, say, you've still got like a, a published novel that can get well received by critics and things, I can't really imagine there being like. Well, I was going to say I can't imagine people having like tw- Twitter critics. Well, you, I, I, mean, you I, do, think, I think you do. I think you do. I mean, I think you have. You know, you certainly have your kind of follow Fridays, and mm. and you have that sense of people looking critically. You know, you get people going, "Oh, you're not as funny as you used to be," or "You're funnier than you used to be," or "You're shit." Uh, you know, so you, I think there's certainly, but you know, I sometimes think that you know, if you took a tweet and you printed it out on nice paper and had it framed and put it on a wall, then it some you know it becomes art and. <laughs> people look at it and they, you know it becomes something I think the thing is it's like the context in which you see so much of this stuff mm. devalues it you know you have a beautiful you can have a beautiful phrase or a beautiful collection of words and it's sitting in the middle of a screen above an update about cricket and below somebody complaining that their bus is late and it seems insubstantial and the same words if you take them into a different context and, and put them mm. frame them and stuff and that's why I sometimes like with some of my tweets will turn them into a twit pit or something, you know, mm. because I just want, I kind of feel like, no, it do, I want it to stand out. I don't want it to just be, a, you know, a kind of update on somebody's phone. I want it to have some sense of permanence beyond that. I quite like the, the that kind of element of it, though, that you, you can have these really mundane things and suddenly a really weird stuff will start popping up in people's, what people's reading. And in a way, that's kind of more art yeah, it's it is like kind of situa- it's, situationism. Yeah, it's I like, don't really know what situationism is. So <laughs> let's let's you know let's gloss over that. But um, yeah, I, I think that's. I mean, I think that there's, you know, Twitter is this amazingly banal thing, and, mm. and there's this, you know, I like the idea that you can have art alongside people complaining about the weather and people making incredibly shit puns about some, you know, uh, some current affairs issue mm. but at times you just kind of you know when you're feeling like I'm a tortured artist and you're writing you're bearing your soul and, and, and crafting these slightly overwritten pieces on Twitter and you think oh, 
and somebody else is going, America's top, not yet top model, it's not on. You know? <laughs> and you just go, no, I want this to be, you know, more than that. Yeah, it can be very, I find it very, I spent a long time on Twitter and in recent sort of months I've not really had time to, but also I've kind of found myself sort of thinking that certain things like ideas I have, I kind of think like they would work on Twitter. I could put them in that, but I, at the same time, I feel like then they'd be gone, and I should like save certain things mm. and try and use them on for something a bit more substantial and something that would last longer. I think I think that it goes back a bit to what I was saying that you have a kind of short term game and a long term game, and you have mm. this thing where you sometimes have a great idea and you think I could develop that into something really substantial, or I could get a re- I could get fifty retweets off it now. Mm. It's that kind of thing of do you do the thing that artistically in the long term is probably going to be better. Or do you think that is going to kind of boost your ego for 20 minutes now? Mm. And for me, it's increasingly like, you know, I go for the retweet option, you mm. know. And I think that, you know, I, I I wonder now, you know, if like Dickens or somebody had been alive now, if instead of writing kind of his masterpieces, he'd just been going, oh, great observational comedy about a fishwife. <laughs> Got a great line about a fishwife, you know. <laughs> Fantastic orphan gag. <laughs> that I'm gonna, you know, that, that will. This is going to make a hundred. This will make the five star top hundred. You know, <laughs> and so I kind of think it is easy to kind of blow it all on on mm. on Twitter. Um, and I think also if you take any time off Twitter and you kind of look back on it, you just go, these people are idiots. Mm, like, yeah. You know, you, you when you look at it from outside and you go like, something will happen. John Terry will get stripped of the England captaincy, and you've just got like fifteen hundred people in a race to make the worst possible yeah. joke about it. And it, particularly, it's like somebody will die yeah, and within, like, someone dies, it becomes. Yeah, and it's if, if you're not totally involved in it, and you look at it, you kind of go, "Why am I on this? Why? Why, yeah, why, I mean, why are these people? The people Whit- I, Whitney Houston died, and like within like five minutes, there were like I'd seen like sixty tweets that were like, "Houston, we have a problem." Yeah. And the thing that's galling is, first of all, it's kind of crap and insensitive, but that doesn't bother me. It's the sheer banality that everybody's chosen the same joke. Everybody going. You know, it's a bit like when you read a you know a blog on Guardian or the Telegraph, or whatever, and there's always somebody going first, and you, you feel like going. You didn't even bother thinking of a good joke; you just wanted to be the first person to. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I could rant about this. All no, well, time. yeah, the puns and that's part of the reason I don't really go on anymore. It seems like everybody I follow is either turned into a pun person or mm. sort of develops like this. Yeah, and obsession and with them. I don't really do them. Uh, every so often, one sneaks out by mistake, but generally speaking, I'm just like it. Just seems like. So many of them are also really self-consciously reverse-engineered. Yeah. So it'll be like... Uh, yeah, it's like ridiculously tortured stuff. So, yeah, exactly. Like really weak, weak, weak pun. It'll, it'll be like, play. I don't know... Uh, oh, I'm first <laughs> trying to think of one. It'll be like... Um, yeah, no, I can't think of one because my brain doesn't work in puns. But I'm just like, yeah, come on, give me something more than puns. Yeah. Well, so they always seem very... They seem insubstantial, and the annoying thing, as you say, with the reverse engineer thing, it's like the setup, and you'll yeah. start thinking, "Oh, this is quite interesting." Yeah, and be like, "Oh, right, no, it's not. Yeah. It's just a yeah. joke." I think yeah. the thing that annoys me about them as well is because I've had times when I'm tr- desperately trying to think of something to say on Twitter, mm. to, in the desperate hope that someone yeah. will like it and yeah. I'll get some kind of recognition. And you can sort of sense that that's what's going on with puns. Yeah, just trying to come up with anything that's a joke and get yeah. some kind of like yeah. applause out of it. But it, it is this. I mean, this is odd. That that odd thing with Twitter, where sometimes you wake up and your your brain is bereft of anything interesting or funny or whatever, and you, but you feel like, oh, I have to say something, and um, it's like, no, you don't. You really don't. The, the world is not going to end. But it is that kind of the degree to which our egos and self esteem are mortgaged on the approval of absolute random strangers on the internet that. You just kind of go, well, you know what, if I wake up and I don't say something on Twitter, it's not the end of the world. You know, mm. people, you know, I, I still exist. I still, my mother will still love me, you know, just about. You know? <laughs> Do you so, have any, like, yeah. kind of weird times when you found you've, like, said too much about, like, your own life and this people have... I tend to tweet a lot about my inner life and not a lot about my personal life. So, which gives the impression that people know me better than they do. Mm. So I might say I'm feeling sad or feeling depressed, but I will never mention where I live or, you know, v- vague terms. But, mm. you know, you see a lot of people who will tweet in very explicit terms about who their boyfriend is, who their girlfriend is, what they, you know, where they work. Um, mm. And I'll kind of, I'm on a bus. I'm on a, I'll say what bus it is, but I'm not going to say what road I live in or, you know, mm. or anything like that. I used to post quite a few photos of myself. I don't do it that much because I had about a week where three or four random strangers tweeted me going, oh, I saw you in such and such. You know, I saw you in Pressamonje in, <laughs> in Barbican or something. And I'd just be like, shit, that was me, yeah. 
And I felt like that odd thing where you feel like, well, I'm becoming famous without having any of the advantages of being famous. Well, yeah, that's 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 kind of why I open like with that question is because it is like a weird half and half thing where you you are very well known by a certain amount of people mm. and they read things you write every day and mm. you know will look out for the things you you write. But at the same time, it's yeah, you have no like no, no wealth or no, is it no material benefit from it? Um, <laughs> yeah, and. Uh, it is that odd thing where, um, you know, I'll be kind of at home, mostly unemployed, and I'll be getting kind of quite famous people or quite powerful people or, pe- you know, people go, head of PR at such and such agency, retweeting me, going, ha, 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 you're so funny. And I'm thinking, well, that's great. But, you know, I'm sitting at home, skint, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and that's not really doing me any good. So you have this odd thing where, you know, I think I think it's very easy for people to assume, in the same way that people assume that once you've written a book, you're kind of, hey, you must be famous, you must be rich. And it's like, no, mm. I, I will. However much money you made last month in your day job, that's a lot. <laughs> that's that's probably more than I earned last year from writing. Do you get? Do you find you get more opportunities being sort of passed your way because of Twitter? Yeah, in the last couple of months, because I've explicitly kind of said I'd like to work in certain, mm. uh, you know, I'd like to work in certain uh, industries, and not quite written a begging letter, but kind of said, come and get me. But I think the the problem is people assume, people see you have a certain number of followers and assume you've made it in some way. Mm. So they go, oh, well, why would we, you know, why would we bother with him? Mm. But most, mainly it's one of those things where I think as a writer, nobody really quite knows what you do. Mm, yeah. And as a writer, I don't really know what I do. So I kind of just go, look, you know the stuff I do on Twitter? I'm quite funny and I, I can, I can, I've got a good turn of phrase. Can you, just, can you just not pay me to do that? You know? <laughs> and they'll go like, oh, well, would you like to write a film? Like, not really. You know, yeah, I mean, you know, if you've already got a film ready, then I'll do it. But, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it, I guess it's frustrating that there's not, it doesn't automatically translate into any other thing that could turn, you know, get you money. There's, like, there's doing sort of good like, Twitter yeah, stuff, uh, but it doesn't automatically mean you can therefore... I think I think that there's an odd thing, which is that, you know, there are people who are very good on Twitter who aren't necessarily professional comedians or, or professional writers. And then you get people who are professional comedians, for example, who are very bad at Twitter. And that's mm. not because they're not funny. It's because they're not. But it's because they haven't mastered how to be funny on Twitter. Mm. And there are, you know, so many people I know, whether it be Whisks or, or Wowser or Bill to Wolf or whoever else, who are brilliant, brilliant hysterically funny on Twitter mm. and then you get like Stephen Fry or Jason Manford or somebody mm. who who you know it's it's not particularly good and it's not that they're bad at writing novels or doing stand up or anything like that, that but people assume that they'll have the kind of brain that works on Twitter and it doesn't mm. they don't I can't remember what, what the question was now so uh, just about how it, um, like Twitter developing um, a kind of a, a, a voice in a sense like there's a voice that people tend to adopt I think so. I, well. I think what's interesting is like my voice is different on Twitter to to what it is on Facebook. Facebook is much more kind of Twitter is very much a persona mm. that that has lots of elements of myself, but it's clearly not me. And then Facebook is much because you know it's like my mum and dad and family members and stuff. That mm. even though it's not totally me, because as soon as you start writing, you're never yourself, mm. uh, or you know you're never yourself in the, in the way that you are when you're physically do you think you only know about your twitter existence they know they know about it and uh, like my sister i've got a twin sister who kind of follows me and will occasionally point out like says oh greg you're really funny you should you know you should be much more famous than you are and i go thanks that's that's very nice <laughs> but it's also a bit like you know rubbing salt in my wound <laughs> uh and then my mum and dad know that i'm on twitter but don't follow me which is fantastic because you know a lot of the stuff is clearly not not mm. suitable for them. But I always, I, I've got a kind of running joke with myself, which is that I'll kind of go onto Twitter and, and say like, oh, I'm so depressed and moody and kind of mysteriously, you know, fucked up. <laughs> and then I'll go onto to, to Facebook and go like, yeah, I had a, fu-, you know, because my mum and dad are, are reading it, go like, yeah, everything's fine. Yeah, I just, <laughs> like, I went out and had a coffee with friends and, you know, everything's fine. Everything's fine. <laughs> and I would hate, you know, I put a lot of kind of angsty stuff on Twitter. And I would hate for, for certain people to read all of that. But then, you know, I'm making it available to the public. So, As far as, like, comedy yeah. writing goes, do you have any kind of... Is that something you were interested in before the internet? Or did um, that sort of suggest itself? I, I, you know, I was always, you know, considered quite funny. And um, people said, oh, you should become a stand-up. But I, I never had the confidence or the kind of... I would, ha- I would have the desire to be a stand-up if somebody could guarantee that every stand-up gig was brilliant and mm. I wouldn't get booed. But given that there is no guarantee, I never I never did that. 
and I did a bit of kind of write tiny bit of writing for radio about seven or eight years ago for the Sunday format, which was a kind of Radio 4 mock broadsheet. But I kind of joined as the last episode was being written, so it's like, that was it, you know. Um, I'm very bad at pitching myself, and I'm very bad at kind of schmoozing and speaking to the right people, Mm. and I get incredibly jealous when I see people who I think are a bit shit, you know, kind of suddenly landing these... Mm. gigs but I also know that it's about putting yourself out there and uh, not biting the hand that feeds and just generally playing a certain game that I'm not necessarily very good at I would you know again talking about people who are particularly good at Twitter and not necessarily good at other things or or vice versa you know I I think that in a sense when Twitter came along I felt like well I've been waiting for this all my life it's a Mm. a series of one-liners but also you get to inject them with a sense of pathos you get to tell a story but it doesn't have to be a narrative story you get to create a persona but it doesn't matter if it's consistent all of these things which were fantastic but you know if somebody said hey Greg why don't you write a sitcom it would be like this man and he works in a garage and like yeah he's maybe he's made it's surreal but it's also really gritty and it would be <laughs> terrible it would be awful so uh, i don't i don't do that i think essentially i'm just kind of waiting a lot I, I figure that if i if i do this long enough somebody will invite me onto a panel show <laughs> you know and that's that's and then i won't have to write anything i'll just kind of uh, wear a twitter avatar <laughs> mask and and adopt my on- online persona uh, is the, is it know. is the online persona and the all the things you just talked about, are they of sort of creating a sort of, you know, like a sort of narrative or like a, a sort of thoroughfare? Is that like a, something you consciously do or is it kind of quite easy to... Uh, it's, I wouldn't say it's something I consciously do, but I don't feel, I'm not necessarily sure I believe it these days, but I remember about a year ago thinking that, in a sense, my greatest achievement as a writer wasn't like either novel I've written, it was creating this character that's a living thing in the sense of it's not like a inert thing like a book that's finished it's creating this persona that is quite nuanced and, and has a look you know it's not just a series of puns it's got happiness and sadness and this and that and has been like a, a soap opera is you know constantly mm-hmm. being updated constantly changing I, I i now kind of just go maybe that's a load of bollocks <laughs> you know maybe that's shit no i don't uh, mean that, that i, I said soap opera is true that's like that kind of goes back to what i was saying about it being very sort of transitory and it sort of it happens and it's sort of very ephemeral it happens mm. and it's gone and people forget about it it's the same as soap operas everyone mm. kind of knows what they are and like will tune into them and be aware of them and be big fans of them and you know get mm. very emotional at them but um yeah but then they're sort of gone but they still they kind of continue going so yeah, I mean, yeah no, uh, sorry carry on i was gonna say do you worry about like the future of this persona and yeah I, I mean well i do because i, I think that the problem is that i think my, he, it used to be more mysterious. It used to be more uh, surreal, and I think I've kind of, I, I increasingly, I can't say I let the mask slip, but I think that um, you know it's much more banal and mundane than it used to be, and I think that I can't be bothered to have that kind of ironic distance anymore. In a sense of, you know, I used to be I'd wake up and I'd make some kind of tweet about some mythical creature hiding outside my window, and now I just wake up and go, you know, it's, it's snowing outside. <laughs> Don't forget to send the BBC your snow pictures. You know, and, and I, I don't, I can't be bothered to be as inventive. And I, I think that part of that is because what you realise about social media, particularly Twitter, is it never ends. Mm-hmm. It's you know, like, um, which is both a wonderful thing, but also it's kind of like you can write something beautiful and, and perfect. Mm-hmm. And in, in a novel, that's the final line, and great, send it off. With Twitter, it, you can write the most beautiful, poignant thing, and then like half an hour later, you're like, I'm just going to go out for some chips. Well, yeah, you know, well, and yeah. and you know, and so you, you never have that kind of, you know, thing of like, ah, my work is done. You know, there's always another tweet to be written, mm. um, which is great in the sense of you know, killing the time between birth and death. But less <laughs> less great in terms of you know, art. I think. Um, I don't know. It's, it's like a different kind of art, I suppose. It's, it's it's strange to think about Twitter as art, especially because everybody's on Twitter now. But I think I I kind of. I like the idea of it being art, and I remember getting into an argument with, with Rodri about, um, that's at Rodri, uh, about, because it was, again, it was about whether, when um, when the newspapers were publishing uh, kind of tweets and mine and stuff like that, and I was getting a bit annoyed about it, and, and he was saying, oh, it's just a tweet. And I was saying, yeah, but 
some of the greatest one-liners in 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 history. I just you know could have could have been tweets. You know whether mm. it be I think therefore I am or you know uh, I've had a wonderful evening, but this wasn't it. You know they could all have been tweets, and you think well the fact that something is short and of its moment doesn't necessarily mean it's not art. Um, and I think sometimes it feels like art. And I mean, you know, it's like all these things. Sometimes it feels like art and sometimes it feels like the worst thing on earth. It just mm-hmm. feels like the most parasitic, narcissistic, you know, energy-draining, pointless exercise you can imagine. Yeah. I, have, you know? yeah, I often think if I had, like, ancestors who came back from the dead yeah. and I had to explain to them how I'd spent most of my time, they'd be very sort of confused yeah. and yeah. ashamed. And Well, yeah, I think sometimes about, like, my grandparents and my grand. I think, you know, I remember, I remember like, having a Sinclair Spectrum when I was about eight or nine and my grandfather, you know, saying, oh, you know, you should learn about computers, they're the future. And if you could fast forward, ironically fast forward 25 years now and see me spending the entire day in front of a computer, not getting paid for it, just hammering hammering around out tweets, pressing F5 to refresh the BB Sport website and, uh, you know, kind of watching some crap videos on YouTube. And yeah, it's you know, this is the, this is the marvelous future we've been promised. Do you do you, what, what? Do you tell people who you meet? What do you tell them? You're on Twitter, or do you mention? Um, or do you? Yeah, in the content. I mean, you know, it, I mean, so many of the people I meet nowadays, I've known through Twitter mm. that you know they already you know know who I am. Um, occasionally, I have that odd thing where you know, I mean, generally speaking, the person I am on Twitter isn't who I, you know, it depends on if I'm going around to my mum's house and, you know, a contemporary of hers is sitting there talking about art or psychoanalysis, I'm, I, I, you know, I'm not going to start saying I'm on Twitter because what does it mean to them? It doesn't mean anything, you know, mm. or it's, you know, some, um, you know, but if I, if I, yeah, if I meet people, it's, it's a bit like saying you're a sex addict. Yeah. Or it's, I always think it's a bit like, if you tell people I've got, you know, thousands of followers on Twitter, it's like going, oh, I've got a really high score on yeah, you know, exactly. Warcraft or something. As yeah, as I, I, did, I, did a, I did like a, a tweet ages ago and it was something like, you know, when you say you're really big on Twitter, it's like saying I have massive fans in the Hobbit community. <laughs> you know, like I've got, I've got 4,000 elves who really love me. Uh, you know, it, it, it does sound odd, but also it, 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 it makes you sound like a cult leader. Yeah, you know, it's like, very like, like David Koresh. That book that came out quite recently, I can't remember who wrote it, the one about Twitter. I think it was Grace Dent. Yeah, it was Grace Dent. And she yeah. said it's like having a hillside tribe that they, you know, they, you could probably get them to throw stones at some vehicles. Well, really, but that's a lot, of, a lot of a lot of Twitter is getting people to throw, particularly for a celebrity, I think, <laughs> and that's not me. Uh, is getting you know going oh somebody mean in the press said something about me. They got a Twitter account, throw stones at them, mm. and then the journalist gets their followers to throw stones back. Yeah, that's, I think, I, I, I'm, it's hard to tell that's a new thing, the, the, uh, the, the, how quick people are to become very emotional in a way that they wouldn't really be on their own. I, I see this. Twitter as this kind of, um, kind of massive resource of outrage, mm. where people have this kind of free-floating rage about something, and all they're looking is, it for as a target and then occasionally mm. someone will come along and go oh you'll never guess what Tesco have done now mm. and everybody will rush to kind of you know the thing that really got me was uh, this thing that happened about a month ago with LA Fitness mm, yeah, did I you see that, that? Yeah, and it was like as a kind of you take a step back and you go well what happened was slightly unfortunate but it wasn't the end of the world and it was like these people wanted to cancel their LA Fitness account and he'd lost his job and LA Fitness had said well we'll cancel a year's worth of supply but you have to pay the last six months mm. which to me didn't seem like in the actions of the Third Reich. It seemed yeah. like you know, like, but you had people kind of going, "This, these people are the scum of the earth," and this kind of whole kind of fermenting uh, rage machine where people were going, "We'll lose them millions," as though, and it wasn't really anything about LA Fitness. It wasn't about the people who were mm. who were. It wasn't n- none of what they did helped the people involved. It was just about finding something you could be self righteously angry about and, and take some kind of moral high ground about. Have you ever read American Pastoral? No, no. It's, that's, it's about a guy who is set in the um, 60s and it's about a guy who's a business in America mm. and his daughter becomes like involved in the radical underground. And he had, there's a really long passage of him sort of telling off uh, one of his daughter's friends, I think. But it sums up Twitter perfectly, just saying that their, their aim isn't to actually change the world or anything. Their aim is outrage. They sort of live for the purity of feeling like they're actually... Mm. They have a point, and they have a point to make, and they will sort of triumph over evil. You know, I, I try not... I, I basically don't get involved in any of those things because if I have outrage, you know, if I have 
rage as a rule it tends to be self-directed and I'm a big fan of self-loathing <laughs> and self-pity um, but also it will be re- you know very specific people in my life you know who you know and so on but the idea of getting like enraged about you know the news of the world or, or whatever I think you can make a good political point about something mm-hmm. without being kind of these people you know without dehumanising everything without reducing everything you know on Twitter gets reduced to these kind of black and white slogans and mm-hmm. particularly like you know, in, in the three or four years I've been on Twitter, like, you know, the coalition government, and I'm not a fan of the coalition government, but you kind of, you know, every time one of them says anything, there's a kind of this huge, like a, a spot being squeezed and this yeah. huge or any, blurt of pus yeah, comes out of like any. how Michael Gove is the most evil man who's ever lived. And you kind of go, you know what? I'd like a bit more nuance and subtlety to my mm-hmm. political analysis than, than just kind of what have they done now? They're the most evil people ever. Because, you know... It's, it's like life isn't black and white. Well, yeah, it's it's very because I can't remember there was recently that I think it was Boris Johnson. He had like a policy. Mm. I can't remember what it was, but it, it, I remember hearing about it, and thinking, "Oh, that's that's actually really good," and kind of you know, mm. great. But obviously, everybody decided it wasn't just because it was him. It's really frustrating for that. Yeah, it just I I can I used to I used to get involved in politics on Twitter occasionally, but you know I think the more the more followers you have, the more likely you are to be misunderstood you know mm. if you've got 2,000 followers and they all mostly get you or 200 followers and they're mostly friends and they get you and they know who you are and they know your sense of humour and they know you as a person whereas if you've got 20,000 followers there's a good chance that two or 3,000 followers only have a vague idea who you are and just follow you because Charlie Brooker or somebody else retweeted mm. you once and you'll say something and they're ripe for destroying you they're ripe for I find that happens anger. anyway though it's like I made like a picture joke that was about Ed Miliband and like it was like a Google result mm. with like loads of yeah, I saw that, things. yeah and it was just like a joke it wasn't like supposed mm. to mean anything politically but the people who, who read it took it either there was like lots of uh, Labour people who took it as like a kind of insult to Ed Miliband mm. and those of sort of right wing people were like yeah I'm glad you're on our side yeah no I, I've had that before where I, I mean I, I try to be fairly even handed in my kind of disregard of Clegg Miliband and Cameron and you know I see all politicians in a sense as failures and you know I, I don't I don't kind of you know occasionally I'll do an anti-Cameron thing but it will just because a perfect story comes out and it works brilliantly and it's a, mm-hmm. it's a funny thing but you know I don't want people then inferring some sense of what my political allegiances are because of that and I think there seems to be a, a kind of lazy assumption that hey you're a North London you're going to be this left-leaning guy and mm. I'm you know left to centre but there are loads of left-wing causes I completely disagree with mm. and I don't like the kind of lazy assumption that oh you're going you must you must absolutely loathe David Cameron I've got no particular feelings about David Cameron mm. you know but Twitter doesn't want you to kind of be indifferent. Twitter demands that you're enraged and, and loathe people. Do you think that's just Twitter? Or do you think that's just? I mean, it could be. It could be all writing. You know, you could write a novel and people, you know, um, people would read it and take it how they wanted to. But because people have the kind of right to reply, or think they do. Um, no, I think that I think it's it's partly Twitter because I think um, the longer form you have in terms of you know whether you're writing a novel or an article or something, you have a chance to explore the subtleties and the the, the vague kind of nuances of political debate or about society and you can create something that isn't polemic that isn't just this is right and this is wrong and the more you compress it down into kind of tweets and facebook status updates the more it becomes kind of sloganeering and pantomime villains and all of that stuff um and i think that you know people very much want to be kind of uh, on on twitter it, it, you know they're it's all black and white. Somebody is a, an absolutely brilliant person and somebody else is a villain. And often the next day the roles have been swapped. You'll get someone like Johan Hari, who was kind of the darling of Twitter, mm. you know, when he was, you know, uh, writing about kind of, you know, stridently left-wing stuff and then became the kind of cheap punchline to every tweet mm. ever for about a month, you know. Yeah. But, it, you know, it's, it's just, it's kind of a kind of a, all grist to the unstoppable Twitter mill, really, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, that's the thing. It's it's annoying when Twitter like is full of people who are having irrational sort of emotional reactions, mm. and then you know, but you, and you see it happen so often, you actually feel like yourself having an emotional reaction to, to that. that. And you, yeah. want to, you want to kind of you know, the only it. thing that outrages me is the out, the levels of outrage I see on Twitter. Yeah. But even then, it's not really outrage. I mean, I, you know, I have a kind of sigh of 
That was a good sigh. A sigh of yeah, a sigh of of kind of disappointment and kind of. I think there's, you know, I'd like to see twenty percent more self-loathing and self-pity and twenty percent less outrage at politicians and the media yeah. on Twitter. You know, I'd like people to go. You know what? I I, I was going to really slag off Ed Miliband. But actually, I've kind of looked inwards and I've realised I don't really understand the issues that well. So maybe <laughs> rather than writing a really trite tweet about something, I'm going to read a book. You know, it is, it is uh, this overwhelming kind of sea of anger and contempt. And I think it's partly because the internet has brought people so much closer together. Mm. But in a sense, all that, that means is that people are pressed against the window of what they haven't got. So you go to like a newspaper and it will be all about somebody's amazing holiday or somebody's new boob job or how much somebody as some banker is earning and people get the opportunity, you know, they're, they're, it's in their faces and yet they're tweeting from their kind of shit nine to five job or they're unemployed and they're, you know, do you know what I mean? So yeah. people have never been closer to, to kind of the, the, this life of glamour that they see in the media, mm. but at the same time, you know, they've never been further away. Well, yeah, and never had as much opportunity to actually yeah. voice their contempt for everything. Yeah, and, and so, you, you know, you just go online and you just hear this kind of, you, you just, you know, every every news article, irrespective of what it is, you know, even if it's like uh, some quite light-hearted, you know, comment piece in, in a newspaper, underneath somebody will just be going... I don't, you know, I expect newspaper articles to be proper articles. Mm. I don't know why this piece of fluff is ever been commissioned <laughs> or whatever. And you think, Christ, you're getting angry even at that. And then yeah. I've noticed more on The Guardian, there's always, all, like, pretty much always, um, someone will, like, have a massive problem with the syntax or the grammar or something mm. and be going, like, why is, why is this person writing for The Guardian when they can't mm. even have a colon in the right place? And you kind of think it's really... You really missed the point of an article if that's actually your yeah. I mean, but I, I find myself guilty of doing it myself in the, in the sense of I think you know you, you see other people's success you know in your mm. face all the time. You know, on something like Twitter, I'll 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 look at people who you know are doing better than I'll you know look at people who are doing a lot worse than me. But I look at people who are doing a lot better than me, and I, and I have this kind of blind rage or jealousy descend upon me, and I have to stop myself kind of going, well, David Mitchell's shit. And I think, well, no, I don't really think David Mitchell's shit. I just kind of think mm. he's perhaps not as good as other people think he is, and that's not his fault, you know. Uh, mm. But he's he's a he's a nice, witty, clever man. You know, he writes reasonably well. It's not his problem that you know that he's doing quite well, and I'm you know not doing as comparatively well. Mm. You know, and you get blinded by this, and I, I stop myself from doing that because I think people like you know all writers like to think of themselves as kind of, you know, esoteric, moody geniuses. Well, yeah. And actually, you're just sitting there kind of <laughs> getting incredibly jealous and petty. And I think everybody know. does that. Everybody, yeah. I think it's natural of people to think of themselves as very complicated people who are sort of motivated by subtle different things mm. that occur to them and influence them in different ways. And mm. then they see other people as like very simple automaton-type people who just respond to their stimulus and things. Absolutely, and it's, yeah. And it's yeah. Kind of, it, people are kind of in between. People are very simple and react to certain stimulus, but they go through the same sort of pro thought process all the time. I, I was I was chatting with somebody yesterday about it, and you know, particularly on Twitter, and it's like people always kick upwards. She mm. said, which is like meaning that I'll slag off David Mitchell because I go, well, he's a public figure, mm. and I'll go, but when somebody will slag off me, I'll just go, I'm not a public figure. I'm just some bloke, you know, in a in a you know a shit flat, you know, in North London, earning not very much money. How dare you have a go at me? But we all think that we all view other people as public figures who are ripe for. Uh, a kicking and our, ourselves as kind of complicated failed uh, enigmas who <laughs> need to be protected in the national interest yeah, I'm being still so. slightly lightheaded from talking too much yeah. <laughs> I should have tweeted it all instead um, I'm going to show you something else which is my other book which I always forget I've written now I have a copy of that one but not oh, with you me do? not okay. with me though yeah. I kind of wrote it long enough ago that I kind of forget about it uh, but yeah, no, I'm kind of, you know, proud of it. It's, it was an actual, you know, novel. I can't imagine it not being like an exciting event to have, like, your own book. It is. I mean, God, it looks small there. Um, it is, but it's that thing of, like, when I was a teenager watching, like, Top of the Pops, and you'd go, Ride would be on, or, mm -hmm. I don't know, some indie band. And 
when you're watching it, you kind of go, God, they must be rich and famous and amazing. And you realise that they're probably still on, they're still signed on, they're on, they're getting, you know, they're playing shit pubs and, you know, in five years' time, nobody will remember them. Mm-hmm. And similarly, you know, you publish a book and you go, wow, it's amazing. And you wait for all the interviews and reviews and stuff and one or two things happen, but not very much. And, you know, you sell it thousand copies or a couple of thousand copies and you make over the course of a year 1500 quid or, or two grand and you know and you go yeah. is that it you know yeah and it's it, it's 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 brilliant i mean i'm really very very proud of having done it yeah it, it it's nice it, i often to be honest you often forget you know mm-hmm. how you were talking about Twitter being a bubble? I view that as a bubble as well. So like, well, when I actually meet people who've, who I don't know, who go, oh, I've read your book, I'm a bit like, it's like if somebody said, oh, yeah, you know, last week I was in your flat and I was creeping around and I uh, was going through your underwear drawer. You'd go a bit like, whoa, <laughs> whoa. And I feel a bit like that when people say that we've read, read my book. I'm a bit like, whoa, you could have asked my permission. Well, you know, and I, I don't know, I'd like to, I'm going to, I'm going to try and I'd be writing these little short stories on Facebook and I'm going to put, try and put a hundred of them together mm. and do, do a Kindle book because I feel like I want to do the opposite of that. That was like something really expensive mm. for a limited amount of people. I mean, my whole website started when about 10 years ago, 12 years ago when dot com kind of thing where I was working in a company and everybody was being made redundant, but we had about two months where they were paying us to be there but there was no work to do so that was when I got a lot of stuff done and it does you know it is great motivation that kind of I've got nothing to do and She turned up on his doorstep, claiming to be from the future. She said that she was from 2012 and that she had been flung back in time to 2002 and found herself inside the body of her younger self, reliving her earlier years. For some reason, despite not knowing who she was or why his hangover kept telling him to vomit on her shoes, he believed her. He invited her inside and put on the kettle. Tea or coffee? Tea for her, coffee for him. She took off her coat, sat on the sofa and explained the situation. In the future, you and I were together. We were in love for years. We lived together. And now I'm back in the past. I thought, you know, this is roughly when we met the first time round. So I thought I should introduce myself. You're my boyfriend. Uh, We have a a relationship to start. He looks at her. The coffee was not helping his hangover. She was attractive, not gorgeous, but attractive. His type. He could see her as his girlfriend. Do we have kids together in the future? he asked her. No, no kids. Neither of us wanted kids. And are we still together? Are we married? Are we in love? Uh, No, she shifted nervously. We lived together for five years, but in the end, things just didn't work out. I fell out of love with you and and had an affair. We split up about two years ago. We're, We're still friends, I think. Oh, he said. Oh, she replied. So, He raised his voice. If we're not married, we don't have kids and aren't happy together, why do you think we should start a relationship together? Do you think it will be different this time round? She smiled and paused. I've been thinking about that a lot. No, I, I doubt it will be different this time. People don't really change, do they? So you want me to go out with you, knowing that it's likely to fail and that we'll both be unhappy? Why would you want me to do that? What would you? Why would you want to do that to yourself? Her eyes were moist and her hand shook as she sipped her tea. Because it happened. Because you were important to me and I was important to you. And I don't think we can make each other happy. But I don't want to live in a world in which you don't recognise me. I don't want to be a stranger. So you want us to make the same mistakes over and over again, he said. His head hurt. The coffee tasted like shit. That's what we do, she said. You'll learn to love it for a while.